Illusion, the international science radio show. Yeah, the bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. <sighs> Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we lovingly drizzle weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we'll feature stock market superstition, uranium mines and karaoke therapy. But first up, here's the news with Calvin Ng. Hello everyone. First, in our roundup of what's been happening in the weird and wonderful world of science, a new report published in Nature Geoscience predicts that sea levels will rise between 7 and 82 centimetres this century. This supports predictions by the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which predicted in 2007 that a rise in temperatures caused by greenhouse gases will lead to a rise in sea levels by up to 59 centimetres. The new paper, led by Dr. Mark Siddle of the University of Bristol, used data from fossilised coal and from ice core measurements to reconstruct sea level fluctuations over the past 22,000 years, from the height of the last ice age to today. Although the report's predictions are not in the order of metres, as suggested by other researchers, this new report's authors say a rise of only 50 centimetres will mean extreme floods will be more frequent, adding that floods that once happened once every 100 years can become once in a decade. Low-lying areas such as Bangladesh will be severely affected. Furthermore, as it takes decades for atmospheric warming to translate into a warming of the seas, the world in the 22nd century and beyond will continue to feel the effects of global warming in the 21st century. Still on climate change, and while industrialised nations such as Australia are still debating on how and when to implement a carbon emissions trading scheme, the small Pacific island nation of Tuvalu has set the goal of taking 100% of its energy from renewable sources by the year 2020. The country, whose highest point is only 4.5 metres above sea level, estimates it will cost around 20 million US dollars to generate all its electricity needs from solar and wind power sources for its 12,000 inhabitants. Already, a 400,000 US dollar solar system on the roof of the main soccer stadium in the capital, Funafuti, provides 5% of the town's power supplies. To put it in perspective though, Tuvalu's inhabitants are not a particularly energy-hungry bunch. Tuvalu's annual emissions of carbon dioxide are just 0.4 tonne per person against more than 20 tonnes per US person. Tuvalu and other low-lying nations want to push for a strong climate deal at the United Nations Climate Change Conference in Copenhagen in December. If you're having one of those days where you think there's just not enough hours in the day to do everything you need to do, thank your lucky stars you don't live on a planet like Saturn. A team of astronomers led by scientists at Oxford University and the University of Louisville, Kentucky, recalculated Saturn's rotational spin using infrared technology and concluded that a day on Saturn lasts 10 hours, 34 minutes and 13 seconds, more than five minutes shorter than previous estimates. As a gas giant has no physical landmarks, 
scientists have traditionally used the planet's magnetic fields to calculate the length of time it takes for Saturn to spin on its axis. But the magnetic signals changes over time, and the results are not always accurate. The findings suggest wind speeds on Saturn are much faster than first thought, and more than 160 miles or 250 kilometers per hour, which is similar to the patterns observed on Jupiter. This suggests that Saturn, despite looking very different, is actually very similar to Jupiter in terms of physical structure, origin, and evolution. Now, guys, if you've always wondered why women always seem to pick on the nitty-gritty details of everything, there may be an evolutionary reason. A study published in the British Journal of Psychology suggests men are better at seeing things in the distance, whereas women are better at focusing things at close range. The research from Hammersmith and West London College asked a group of 48 men and women to use a laser pointer to mark the midpoints of lines on a piece of paper at different distances. Men were more accurate than women when the paper was placed a meter away, while women were more accurate when the target was only 50 centimeters away or within arm's reach. In a second test, the participants used a stick instead of a laser pointer to mark the midpoints. The results showed no significant difference between near and far, but women still performed better using the stick than when using the laser pointer. The researchers believe the physical feedback of the pointer helped remap the distant text as being closer. Psychologist Helen Stancy from Hammersmith and West London College said this could be due to our hunter-gatherer evolutionary legacy. Women, being predominantly gatherers, would have needed to work well in near space, whereas men, traditionally seen as hunters, would have favoured far-sight pathways to identify their prey in the distance. Finally, why do we swing our arms when we walk? Scientists have long suspected that arm swinging is an evolutionary relic from when we used to move about on all fours. A trio of scientists from the United States and the Netherlands gathered ten volunteers who were asked to walk with a normal swing, with arms folded, arms held by the side, or with an opposite to normal swing, meaning meaning swinging the arm on the same side as the leg taking the stride. It then, the scientists then measured the amount of oxygen consumed and carbon dioxide produced. The study found that walking with a normal arm swing actually uses less metabolic energy. Holding your arms still uses 12% more metabolic energy compared with swinging your arms, and walking with an opposite to normal swing forces up the metabolic rate by a quarter. The arms pendulum swings also help to dampen the bobbing up and down motion of walking, which is itself an energy drain on the muscles of the lower legs. The results were published in the journal Proceedings of the Royal Society B, the biological research journal of the Royal Society. Thank you, Calvin. And another story that's come up recently 
is that the new uranium mine in South Australia is largely owned by the American arms manufacturer, General Atomics. General Atomics, which has one of those wonderful names from the 1940s science fiction sort of golden age stories before there was any commercial nuclear power. They've been in the news recently because they just settled a case of fraud for sales and contracts of uranium. So General Atomics, been to court, charged with fraud for their contracts and sales and prices of uranium, and they settled for $41 million US. So that case is over, but they still owe the mine. And what happens to the uranium that Australia mines and exports? Well, India has been in the news in the last few years because the new Labor government made noises about perhaps this time we wouldn't be selling uranium to India because the last time we sold uranium to India and they promised they wouldn't make any nuclear weapons out of it, and they did. So they're now in the nuclear club when they weren't before, thanks to us selling them uranium. Well, the Indian Prime Minister has happily announced that their advanced technology vehicle is ready to launch. It's a nuclear-powered, nuclear-armed submarine. It brings India into the elite club of previously only five nations that were capable of building a nuclear-powered submarine, with a little help from the Russian Federation. And the next story I have is therapy for aphasia. Aphasia is a condition where you have trouble with speech. You have trouble understanding speech. You have trouble producing speech. So, for example, you might suffer aphasia if you've had a stroke or if you've suffered a brain injury from an accident or if you've suffered a neurotoxin that's attacked the speech centres of your brain. Amongst the types of aphasia, there's non-fluid aphasia and there's mild aphasia. Non-fluid aphasia is where you have trouble speaking at all. You're practically mute because you just can't produce the words and you often have trouble understanding speech as well. Mild aphasia or fluent aphasia is where you have problems with pronunciation. You have problems remembering words or getting the phrases or controlling the tonality or just producing the words at all or understanding the speech, but you can produce and understand most speech or some speech. Now, I personally have been hit with mild aphasia when I was poisoned with the tropical fish poison, Ciguatera, and I've reported on this on Diffusion in 2005 and a few follow-up stories on Ciguatera as the science progressed. When I found I had problems with my voice, as you may hear if you listen to older shows of Diffusion, you can hear my voice changed, I tried to work out what I could do. I saw speech therapists, but speech therapists are very concentrated on your throat. They're looking for problems with your voice box, and my problem was in my head. And they weren't quite ready for that. They might have been if I hadn't been sick. If I'd been well enough to explain to them, if I didn't have the mild aphasia in the first place, I could have made myself clear that it was a neurological problem. In fact, I could have brought along tapes, perhaps, or some recordings of my voice so they could tell the difference. But because I was hit by neurotoxin, I wasn't able to think of that, and I wasn't able to explain it clearly. So I thought about it, and another neurological problem that people have with speech is stuttering, far more common. And people have found a solution that helps people with stuttering is singing, because singing seems to involve alternative neurological pathways. You use different bits of your brain to sing than you do to speak, 
So a stutterer that gets stuck on certain words or even at all will be clearly and easily able to sing the words that they had trouble speaking. So I reasoned perhaps it might help me. But because I'd been hit by neurotoxin, I could not remember any lyrics to save my life. And in fact, of course, I was having trouble pronouncing the words as well as trying to remember what they were. I found there are programs you can get that will bring up the lyrics for any songs you can play on your computer. The one I was using was called Evil Lyrics. You get Evil Lyrics, a bit of freeware, and you run it at the same time as your media player of choice, and it looks up lyrics databases on the internet and puts the lyrics up on your computer screen, which means you can sing along. The other advantage, apart from helping my memory, was that I was practicing tonality by singing, and I was singing along with someone who was getting it right because I was singing along with, with the actual singer. So these things together made sense to me. And of course, singing is fun. And if you do it in the privacy of your own home in front of a computer, no one else has to get hurt. So I tried that and I found after a couple of months, my pronunciation improved, my tonality improved, and so I kept going and my voice improved generally. A year later... A paper was published in the journal Brain, volume 129, page 2571, about a study done with aphasia and singing in choirs. Now, I hadn't quite sung in a choir, but I'd done the equivalent by singing with someone, even if that was a recorded someone. So, what they said in New Scientist about this study in the Brain Journal is that Isabella Perez and her colleagues at the University of Montreal in Canada gave people with aphasia familiar and unfamiliar songs to sing on their own and with others. Singing alone didn't help them, but singing in a choir dramatically improved their ability to recall and pronounce words, regardless of the song they were singing. They're not sure what it is that's going on. They'd previously thought that singing could help aphasia because people slow down their rate of speech and it sort of limits the number of syllables, but this didn't seem to be true. What they found, it's not the singing that helps, at least the language memory, but the sharing of mood and experience between singers. So you're using the social parts of your brain, and you're also using, of course, your mirror neurons, and all of these things let you bypass the damage that you've had to your language centres and rebuild so that you can sing clearly and remember the words and pronounce the words and get your voice back. Now these points of data make a beautiful line and we're out of data, we're releasing on... You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, diffusion at 2ser.com, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. And next up we have Correlation of the Week with Mark West. Humans are a superstitious lot. We don't walk under ladders. We think a red moon at night is a sailor's delight, or something like that. And we've got a pair of lucky undies. Well, at least Mark does. But can we see this superstition in the stock market? It's the way we price things, vulnerable to irrational thought. Mark West investigates in this week's Correlation of the Week. And now it's time for another Correlation of the Week, or as we like to call it, Correlation of the Week. In the recent paper, Dark omens in the sky do superstitious beliefs affect investment decisions. 
Gabrielle Lapori from Copenhagen Business School has correlated the occurrence of solar and lunar eclipses with four American stock indices, the Dow Jones Industrial Average, the S&P 500, the New York Stock Exchange Composite, and the Dow Jones Composite Average. This is possibly the most fun and most mathematically rigorous correlation of the week that we have had yet. I love it. Lepore's idea was to test whether superstitious practices could be picked up in the stock market. His theory was that individuals are more likely to resort to superstitious practices when operating in environments dominated by uncertainty and high stakes. The stock market is therefore an ideal place to test this theory. Eclipses are regarded as unlucky in many Western and Asian societies, and as they are worldwide events occurring over a relatively short period of time, the effects of such unlucky events should be seen in stock trading, if there is an effect, that is. Lepore took the dates of all 362 lunar and solar eclipses that had been visible anywhere in the world between 1928 and 2008 and computed the four stock indices on the day of the eclipse. The results suggest that in the three days around the date of an eclipse, three of the four stock indices exhibited statistically significant lower-than-average returns. If an eclipse took place on a weekday, when the stock markets were open, its effect was larger than if it occurred on a weekend. And the greater the magnitude of the eclipse, the more likely it would influence stock returns. On the days following the eclipse, Lepore showed that markets reversed the eclipse-related dip suggesting that the market realised the drop was irrational. Here is a perfect opportunity for astute investors to make some money. Buy stocks at the eclipse maximum and sell a few days later. Or sell a few days before the eclipse and buy back at its maximum. This is known as arbitrage. Indeed, Lepore found that an investor who had bought the Dow Jones Industrial Average at the end of 1928 would have multiplied their money 37 times by now. However, one who sold before each eclipse and bought back straight after would have multiplied their money by 55. Lepore's theory is consistent with the idea that at the time of an eclipse, there is less buying pressure coming from the superstitious. Trading volume also decreases. These patterns are inconsistent with efficient market theory, which states that traded assets reflect all known information and instantly change to reflect new information. This means that it is impossible to consistently outperform the market by using any information that the market already knows. Now, eclipses are perfectly predictable events, and so even if they did influence stock prices, this should already be built into their price. I recommend a read of the original paper, and you can find a link to that on my website, www.mrscienceshow.com. Check out the mathematical rigour and the lengths to which Lepore went to control for other variables such as day of the week, media coverage of the eclipse, and even the weather. Fantastic stuff. I'm not sure whether this gives me a more positive or negative opinion of the stock market. On one hand, it shows how complex the market is and why we must employ smart people and pay them loads to understand it. On the other hand, this study shows that completely irrational beliefs and behaviours can influence how we price things. This surely undermines the system. In the modern globalised world, everything is governed by finance, and allowing irrational thought to influence world affairs, frankly, scares me. But maybe that shouldn't surprise me at all. Wars are started over personal disagreements, politics is dominated by petty arguments, and some people still doubt evolution. I guess the world just ain't rational. Congratulations, Gabrielle Lepore. You have won this week's Correlation of the Week. That was Mark West, 
trying to rationalise irrationality in the stock market. And finally, we have a story about the cost of scientific publication. Yes, a couple of weeks ago, the World Intellectual Property Organization announced that 12 publishers have granted free access to about 64 journals to research and academic institutions and intellectual properties in almost 50 developing countries. And another 58 developing countries would be able to access by paying an annual subscription of 1,000 US dollars a year, uh, as opposed to a regular annual subscription fee of over 400,000 US dollars a year. So it all sounds nice and nice and well that developing countries can have free access to scientific journals that uh, developed countries often take for granted. But, of course, this isn't the end of the story because an open access publishing expert at the University of New South Wales, Dr Roger Clark, he argues that this is all nice and well, but if developing countries don't have sufficient access to internet and don't have proper internet infrastructure and proper downloading speeds and uh, sufficient access to computer equipment, then what's the point of free access? Exactly. This is the problem. They need access to the journals to do science. And we need them to do science and they need to do science because science is an endeavour done by everybody all over the world. It's a collaborative endeavour. And if they don't have internet access, then this is not very generous at all. But the problem is, why are they paying so much anyway? $400,000 a year, that's massive. And you might think, well, you know, these journals, just like any other magazine, they have to pay their writers and, you know, to get the content. Well, they don't. Scientific journals don't pay their writers. The writers are scientists who've written the papers for their research as part of their work for whatever institution they work for. So the content's free to the journal. Well, you might say, well, it's the editing. Well, it's not actually edited in-house. It's peer-reviewed. And the peers are people who work for universities who are doing it as part of their work for the institution. So they don't pay for that either. So in the end, it's pretty much printing. Printing administration, which only applies to the paper. So if it's the online version... Why should there be any costs at all? The Public Library of Science, PLOS, is an online-only journal, and it's free. Because the costs of maintaining an online-only journal are very, very low. So low that they can be covered by a grant from a university. So the question is, are scientific journals going to keep going, and can science afford to keep out the developed world by saying, you can only get it if you're on the internet? But of course, um, as anyone who's ever tried to research or, or try to find scientific journals in, in a database, so sometimes you have documents that are, say, PDF files, because it's scanned from, from a, a, a printed version of the journal, and those files are huge, a couple of megabytes sometimes. And if you don't have sufficiently fast internet access, um, network speeds, then it can either take you know, a couple of minutes to download or it can take an hour or, 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 or more. So it sounds like a beautiful principle to offer developing countries to uh, 
Yeah, free access, but if their access speeds are、uh, back to the days when we had、uh, you know fifty six kilobytes、uh, dial up modem, if that's the sort of speeds that that's common in in, a, in the developing world, and and、uh, I don't necessarily have to go up on the limb, but here, but I'm sure that the network speeds in developing countries are definitely a lot slower than what we're used to in the developed world, and even、uh, network speeds in Australia. Are far, far behind the network speeds that people in Europe and the United States and Canada, the speeds that they would be、uh, used to. So, if it takes if it takes me about ten minutes to download, you know, a, a series of journals, then imagine how long that would take for someone in a developing country with weak, with a very weak internet、uh, connection. Well, that's right, and it's also, of course, if you don't belong to a university library or a library that has the subscription that they're paying to all these journals, you can't even, you can't access the online versions for free, ex- unless it's a public library of science or unless someone's been able to get a version of the, one of the PDFs and put it up on the internet. So even the scientists who did the research can't you always offer a PDF of their own paper for free without violating the copyright. Of the people who didn't write it, who own the journal, so it's all a, a little bit confused. If you're on the internet and you're not a member of one of these libraries, you often can't get access to the original papers for a lot of research.、Uh, you either have to go to the library and ask someone to do it for you, or else you have to be a member of a research institution or a university. So something's not quite right there. We need to fix it. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, or you'd like to just tell us what you like or what you'd like to hear, if you'd like to broadcast a story on Diffusion and hear your own voice passionately communicating science on radio, then send email to diffusion at tuscr.com. That's diffusion at tuscr.com, or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www. .diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Mark West and Calvin Ng. Diffusion has been produced in the studios of 2SER Sydney, and is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolf. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Just hype. Times is tough. I'm crying and wiping my nose on my cuff. I stand out on the corner with my hand out in the cold. Buddy, can you spare a trillion dollars? I'm feeling the pain. Head to 
my feet Wall Street to Main Street to Sesame Street Flat out on the sidewalk with my hat out in the snow Buddy, can you spare a trillion dollars? There's the kind of bailout where you bail your friends from jail out and go with them to dig up the loot And the kind of bailout where you send a bail of mail out just to get a vote kind of bailout where your plane has spun its tail out and you need a golden parachute or the bailout where you're bailing out a boat a great big allegorical boat you got trapped in while the captain napped and now somehow it don't float why why what went wrong John McCain told me my fundamentals were strong. But on the bright side, he just picked up an important endorsement from Herbert Hoover. I don't mean to whine, I mean to mourn. Now I owe China my firstborn's firstborn. And I walk up every street in town and hawk up to my neck Saying, buddy, hey buddy, anybody, can you spare a trillion dollars?